Okay, let's start off with a very warm welcome to my fellow humanoids. The name they gave me is Luke Story, and I'm here to deliver to you episode 444 of the Lifestylist Podcast. Now, rather than doing our regular monthly solo cast, we decided to mix it up and try something a bit different today. This is our first AMA, or Ask Me Anything show, co-hosted by our associate producer, Bailey, in which I answer a slew of questions posted in the Lifestylist Podcast Facebook group. And by the way, if you want a chance to have your question featured on my next AMA, go join the Facebook group and post it there. And while you're at it, if you don't do so already, please follow me on Instagram, at Luke's Story. Then keep an eye out on my future IG stories for a chance to submit your questions there before we record these once-per-month special AMA episodes. And for those of you who prefer your lifestylist content censorship-free, you'll likely enjoy my Telegram channel where I post controversial news, content, and the world's dankest memes on the daily. You'll find my Telegram channel at lukestory.com slash telegram. Here's a quick rundown of today's show, then we'll get right into it. And by the way, show notes for this bad boy can be found at lukestory.com slash 444. First, you'll hear the story of how Bailey went from being a longtime listener of the show to being top dog on my team. Then I'll do my best to answer questions on such topics as adult male circumcision, how to surrender to God without losing yourself, the complexity of biohacking women's bodies compared to men's, and we also explore some other topics like hair loss solutions, the use of methylene blue, finding plant medicine ceremonies near you, and detoxing from that nasty stuff called fluoride. And I'll let you know, this was a really fun show for me to record, so much so, in fact, that I have a feeling we'll be replacing our monthly solo cast format with this new co-host AMA jam. So after you listen, please send me a note on Facebook or Instagram with your feedback. Remember, you know, this show is for you, so I deeply value your preferences and feedback and always do my best to provide what you're looking for. And next week's episode drops on Tuesday, and that'll be number 445, naturally. It's called Inside the Harmonic Egg a journey of healing and transformation featuring Gail Lynn. And I can't wait to share that one with you. It's a wild ride uh, in the realm of sound, light, and energy healing. Lastly, before we embark on this AMA, I'll take a moment to invite you to join my free newsletter. If you do so, each week I'll send you the new podcast content, including the audio, video, and complete show notes, links, and transcripts for all the new episodes, as well as any announcements for upcoming events or other opportunities to join me on this journey of personal growth and spiritual awakening. You can get on the email list in about 30 seconds. Just go to lukestory.com slash newsletter, then enter your name and best email, and we, my friends, are off to the races. All right, let's strap in for episode 444 with my awesome co-host, Bailey Richardson. And if you dig it, share it with someone you love. So here we are, listeners of the Lifestylist Podcast. We have a unique and hopefully innovative format today. Rather than doing the normal solo cast, wherein... I prepare this very arduous manuscript in great detail for 10 to 12 hours uh, and then essentially try and convey that information in a solo cast staring at my computer. Uh, I thought it would be much more fun to actually sit down and have a conversation with someone. So I am the guest and this is a solo Q&A today, but we have uh, Bailey, who is, uh, I guess we would call our operations manager here at Luke Story Inc. and runs so much of the podcast. 
And she's going to be answering or asking the questions and I'm going to be hopefully answering them. And we're going to try this out and see how it goes. I have a feeling it'll be fun and people will enjoy it. Maybe even more than just sitting there listening or watching me talk to a microphone on my computer. (laughs) But I thought, Bailey, um, as we get started in this episode, which hopefully I think will become a regular thing if we like it and everyone else does, maybe you could just take a minute to introduce yourself to the audience I know I'm kind of putting you on blast here. You like to work behind the scenes in, in a degree of safety and anonymity, but someone has to sit there and ask me the questions and it might as well be you. Mm-hmm. So uh, give the, the listeners a little bit of background where you came from and how you ended up working with me on this project. Yeah. So I listened to your podcast for about three and a half years before I guess I kind of took it upon myself to decide that I was going to work for you. Um <laughs> I heard you talking with Matt Maruka on one of the episodes that he was on, and you guys mentioned that you needed assistance in a very nonchalant type of way. Like, I don't think you guys were expecting any responses. So I emailed both of you, and about six months later or so, Matt got back to me and ended up hiring me as his affiliate manager and executive assistant. And I worked for him for about a year. And then you needed an assistant, an executive assistant, and you were looking for someone in Austin and you didn't find the right fit. And um, being in a circle of people who knew you personally, you know, I got the heads up that you were going to go outside, look outside of Austin and, and I applied and yeah, and you hired me. So you were, you were listening to a podcast and you, and you were a fan and now you're hosting it. Right. <laughs> People that could look you up on how you manifest things. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. I definitely, even <clears throat> starting working for you about a year ago, I would never see myself being here. Even maybe like a month ago, I would never have guessed that this would happen. <laughs> well, um, to your credit, and you've been just so amazing and instrumental in my quality of life and the organization and success of the business that I have and I'm building. But also I think it's worth noting that I think it was your idea to do this this way, right? I mean, if not, I don't think you were like, hey, let me ask you the questions, but you're just like, hey, what if you have someone else there, which could be Allison. I'll probably do some of these with her too, if I can wrangle her into it. But those are those type of ideas are invaluable and it's it's so awesome. I'm so grateful as a content creator and someone who's just putting my ideas and um, other people's ideas out into the world that it's um, very common that you come to me with a really good idea. And it's like one of those things that's so obvious and simple like this sometimes <laughs> as I've expressed to you how time consuming it is. It's so hard for me to hit the deadlines with the solo cast because just, I'm just too kind of OCD slash thorough about it that it just it takes so long it's like so much work to just put out a 60 minute bit of content so thank you for coming up with this idea which i think is genius and definitely gonna i think add maybe even more value to the listener experience on these usually once a month solo casts but also just make my life way easier because i made those so difficult on myself so yeah this i mean when i proposed it to you it was um in my head, I was asking you the question and we were cutting that whole part out. So it was like a secret. Like I wasn't in it at all. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> but um, the way that you saw it, you know, it, it created an opportunity for me to step up and do something that I've never done before that I would like, I was really uncomfortable with the idea of it when I first heard it. 
but I was able to grow inside myself to get to a place where I can do it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, for, I mean, it was like, I needed that. We all need to do things that are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the, that's the cosmic joke about the human condition, right? Is if we just continue to do things that are on the well-worn, easy path, we don't tend to mature and expand. It's just the way things are set up. <laughs> Sometimes, unfortunately, right? It's like, why can't I just go the known way and just stay comfortable, but still <laughs> progress? And it just doesn't seem no. to be the case. It's like walking through those, um, those, challenging situations is what helps us to actually grow so yeah and being on the other side feels so good to look back after you've done it and you're like oh my gosh i thought it was going to be so much harder that's how it was with my first episode episode number one it was called return of the jedi and uh god it was like six and a half almost seven years ago Uh and it took me i don't remember how many months but a few months of like uh, stalling the actual starting this podcast because episode one, I got in my head somehow that it needed to be kind of an introduction to me and essentially told my life story and who I am and the purpose of doing the podcast and all that. And it was so mortifying (laughs) to sit on that mic and like essentially kind of dictate this manuscript of this narrative that I had created to set up the podcast it was so scary that it, I put off launching the show for months because it was just like so gnarly to sit there and be that um, exposed and vulnerable and feel so awkward by just sitting there talking to my computer and then putting it out in the world, especially as it <laughs> pertained to, um, you know, telling my my story, which is I've kind of a sordid past to say the least. So I thought I just want to be honest. And then when I made that commitment to just be um, kind of vulnerable, yeah, that made it even more scary because yeah. it's like shit I've never talked about publicly, you know, and just kind yeah. of, it well, was very personal, you know, it made right. it really hard. It's different now because so many people know your story. Like I think of you as somebody who's always so open and, you know, people who've heard of you, they know that whole story. But when you were recording that and nobody knew it, it's like, oh my gosh, what's going to come back to me from putting this out there? Yeah, it was it was a little scary. So I, I relate. I mean, I think anyone that's not used to being on camera and being kind of, I was always behind the scenes for the most part when I was in my former career as a fashion stylist. And then with School of Style, my other business, I started to do more on camera stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of used to it, but I was talking about something unrelated to myself. It was very impersonal. I was teaching people a trade essentially, right? Or how to market yourself as an artist in the fashion industry. So there's never anything really anecdotal or personal. It was just very, you know, there was a specific purpose to my public speaking and it was not about me. It was about here's how you do this thing and teaching people about that. So yeah, it was, it was gnarly. But to that end, what I found is that the more open I've been able to be specifically like doing the solo cast the more I've been able to actually use it as a tool for my own growth and and then also inspire some other people to do the same. And then it also kind of sets the standard for how I like to speak to guests. So when I'm preparing a manuscript to interview someone, I'm always going to go as deep as I think I could or would go. Right? Yeah. And so we have, I think, more intimate conversations and over time I've just kind of I'm sure cultured the the audience and the potential guests that have heard the show before that nothing's off limits yes and most of the people I've interviewed have been down with that and have been really willing to 
be revelatory and and quite personal. And um, anyway, I think the cumulative benefit of that is just everyone gains more self-acceptance and there's a diminishing of the feeling of separation or shame with other people. And we, we get to learn through these intimate conversations that we all have the same fears and insecurities and concerns and traumas and, you know, the the overarching stories of our lives might be a little bit different, but the way that we experience them emotionally is the same. Yeah, right. right. So it's like different content. Yeah, we, yeah, exactly. We all have the same instincts and the same drives and all the things, you know, and then we just have an individual experience of, of our lives in that way. So I think yeah. it's been really healthy for me to actually do that. So, well, and I probably wouldn't be here if you didn't because. I would never have been so drawn to your podcast if it wasn't about going deep with people. And I bet people have known that you do that and that caused them to say yes to coming on, like to being a guest. Probably. I bet. Probably. Yeah. I think my goal is, and we will get into the questions. (laughs) There's no plan. This is too fun. There's kind of no plan here, guys. So just roll with us on this. Um, (laughs) I think it, when when each guest that I sit down with or anytime I'm interviewed on like another podcast, I think there's um, sort of a ripple effect that goes out into our culture wherein people are more willing to just be open and honest with themselves and with other people. And when you do so publicly, there's a ripple effect of giving everyone permission to do that, right? And yeah. we, we stop feeling so unique in our suffering and our challenges we realize like man we're all up against the same shit we get to see the guest fully and meet them with love and then we can be more confident that someone else we could show ourselves to someone else and they would meet us with love yeah it sounds so scary anymore yeah totally yeah so here you are doing the scary thing. <laughs> Luckily, you just get to mostly ask the questions and then I'm on the spot to hopefully um, give some answers. So uh, for those listening, these questions are um, taken from the Lifestylist Podcast Facebook group. And I want to invite people to join that group. I know many of us have fled Facebook because of its censorship policies and and whatnot. And I totally understand that. I don't personally spend time on Facebook with the exception of going into the Lifestylist uh, group. There's about, I don't know, six, 7,000 people in there. And there's some really great questions from people. But more importantly, I think the community of humans in there has been really um, just awesome to watch as they have gained in knowledge and understanding because someone will post a question in there. I mean, not necessarily directed at me. I think now everyone just supports one another. But in the beginning, hey, what does Luke think about this or that? And then I would go in there, do my best to answer it. And now you have people posting questions. And I find a lot of the members are giving answers that I would have no idea about. So it's really quite an impressive group of people in there. So for those wondering where these questions came from, they're just essentially randomly selected by Bailey and We'll name, uh, you know, the first name of the person who asked the question. And anyone that wants to ask questions to be featured on future episodes like this, I encourage you to join the group. And you can just find it by searching within Facebook, the Lifestylist Podcast Group, request to join, and um, our admin will let you in. And then uh, you can join this party. Mm -hmm. Oh, and also, just so I don't have to say this in the intro, 
for people that have totally um, dis disavowed Facebook, which I understand, um, and want more subversive information, <laughs> you can join my Telegram channel, which you can find at lukestory.com slash Telegram. And that link will take you to um, the uncensored content. And I'll forewarn you, it's often uh, rife with shock and awe because of the news and memes and things that I'm sharing there are definitely more controversial and sometimes... Um, not that hopeful. <laughs> you know, the Facebook group is where we all like are love and light and positive and supporting each other. The Telegram group is like, wake up, <laughs> look out, here they come. You so. make us laugh though. I mean, you got to take it all with a grain <laughs> yeah. of salt, right? It's like, if the world is as bad and polarized in some ways as we perceive it to be, I mean, what are you going to do? You got to, there's 99% of it is totally out of our control. So the yeah. 1% that's in our control is, our perception of this reality and how we respond and react to it. So yeah, I try to have a sense of humor even about the bad news. I mean, the CDC yesterday just decided they're going to add these experimental um, medications into the childhood um, vax schedule. You know, oh, just let's just great. throw those in too because the eighty-five things that we already put in them uh, aren't enough. Um, so things like that happen. I'm just like, really? <laughs> like, yeah. Just when you think it couldn't get any worse. But then, you know, I also don't know what's on the other side of all this, right? Like fast forward 20 years from now and we look back on the dark ages of COVID and the pandemic and we go, oh my God, thank God that all happened because that led to this yeah. new emergence of consciousness or, you know, a general awakening or a reorganization of the systems of um, society that we've relied on and built that are now kind of showing their ass and are crumbling before our eyes in terms of the medical system, education, finance, the whole ball of wax. So mm -hmm. that's the perspective I try to keep. It's like, well, this looks really bad and this, this sucks from one point of view, but we don't really know until we get on the other side of it. And then sometimes you look back and think the worst things that ever happened are the best things. I mean, that's been the case subjectively in my life. I look back on my past and some of the mistakes I've made and some of the ways in which I was victimized and harmed and harmed myself. And all of it was necessary to get to the person and life that I love now. Mm. So can I really say that any of that was bad? No, it was just, it just is. You know, it's like Shakespeare said, my, one of my favorite quotes and then I swear you can get to the questions. <laughs> we were like, before we started, you guys were like, I don't know, is this enough for an hour? I'm like, I don't think we have enough questions. Like, we're 20 minutes in with no questions. Uh, but the quote is, uh, there's no such thing as good or bad. Only thinking makes it so. Yeah. And that's like, you know, a Shakespearean non-dual principle, <laughs> right? But it's so true. Mm -hmm. so you can think about anything that happens in your life the nature of that event is absolutely determined by how you hold it and how you frame it. Some of the things that you might look from outside, the things that have happened to me in my life that seem like the worst ever, those were by far the most important things that happened to me. Like I was in a big car accident that showed me this whole world that we're, you know, living in now with, with, taking control of your health and fixing your own ailments. And yeah, I wouldn't have even heard your podcast without that car accident. Well, thank God you got in a car accident. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was good stuff. Yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. they say. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so we have Dan here asking about water. Which would you opt for? Not 
regarding the price. Um, Pellegrino, Mountain Valley Spring Water. Um, oh, he wants to get it delivered in five-gallon glass jugs. So which one would you go for, Pellegrino or Mountain Valley Spring Water? That's a, a great question. And you know I love the water stuff. I mean, I just think water is water is consciousness. It's so important and so little understood and misunderstood. And so um, based on the fact that our bodies are on a molecular level, 99% water by weight, you know, there's debates about which is true, but anywhere between say 70 and 90% people say the experts trust the experts. <laughs> so water is just super, super important. And so that's why I just harp on about this all the time, because I think a lot of people get caught up in the food and the supplements and it, to me, the health and um, why people ask me, I think these questions is it's all about realigning ourselves um, with the elements, right? And so sun, earthing, grounding, water, natural EMF, um, you know, from grounding, things like that um, are just super, super important. It's, it's like all the non-sexy stuff. It's like water, boring. Tell me about the new <laughs> mitochondrial supplement or something. So I, I appreciate the question. Um, I'll start by saying that you know, getting access to really high quality, pristine water is something that isn't possible for everyone. So when I talk about like water strategy, I always try to frame it from a perspective of what's realistic for you, your budget, where you're located geographically, et cetera. If you're living in the middle of the Sahara desert in an impoverished village, your options for water are going to be much different than someone living in Manhattan or Phoenix or wherever, right? So I don't know where this person is located because that would kind of indicate dictate what my answer would be. But to specifically speak to that, um, I like drinking sparkling water sometimes because it helps me. It gives me that like sensation of drinking a soda pop, you know. <laughs> um, Same. People from the East Coast call it a pop. I've always called it soda. There's a California you call it a soda. It's just like dinner and supper. You In know? the South, you call it a Coke. Really? No matter what it uh, is. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, so there's something to be said for that. And there are, um, I forget what they're called, not nitrates, but there's something in bubbly water that's that's good for you. Sulfates, maybe it is. I forget what it is, but I studied up on it and became convinced. I was like, sometimes sparkling water can be really good for you. Um, I wouldn't drink something like Pellegrino or any other kind of commercial um, bottled water exclusively or all the time just because they're typically really high in inorganic minerals and that can be a bit problematic. So that's the sparkling water, but I do think it has some value. Uh, the other thing is with the Mountain Valley water, again on a spectrum, Mountain Valley water in terms of like drinkable water would be on a scale of one to 10, maybe like a six, 10 being the best. Um, the reason being is Mountain Valley water is labeled spring water, but it isn't actually spring water um, by its truest definition. It's it's actually well water that's drilled from an aquifer, which mm. a well and an aquifer are essentially the same thing. Wells are just typically smaller and they're you know designated to a smaller property like a residential property, whereas an aquifer is like a huge swath of land. Like half of Austin is under the Edwards Aquifer, right? But essentially, if you drill into that, that disqualifies that water as spring water because true spring water springs forth 
on its own accord yeah. um, under the forces of nature, right? So spring water is water that just naturally erupts from the surface of the earth. And um, its mechanism of action, I think, is mysterious at best. You know, I mean, it's like, we don't really know. There's hydrological pressure and these things that geologists and experts in these fields can point us to, but we don't really know how water levitates like I just did some spring water collection in um, Colorado at about 10,000 feet. And it's still a mystery to me. And I've any evidence as to how or why this happens is not sufficient for me so far in all these years of studying water. How does that water get from sea level up 10,000 feet and bubble forth from the top of a mountain that's like solid granite? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Like it's levitating essentially, right? I, I love that you said that it springs forth. It's yeah. like, it's showing up for us. It's like, hey, this is, you drink me. Like, totally. this, I'm the water for you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, the way the planet in, in all its majesty and brilliance is designed. It's a little like tangent off the topic of his question, but um, I think we forget that everything is free. If you remove this superimposed matrix that we call civilization, which is debatable, <laughs> how civilized are we really? Especially how we treat our waters of the world in terms of pollution and adding fluoride into the water people drink. But like energy is free from the sun, um, from geothermal hot springs, right? You get mm. heat. Um, air is free, water's free, and food is free. How could you say it's free when you have to pay for it? Well, you have to take yourself back 15,000 years, maybe pre-agriculture, <laughs> kind of pre-civilization, maybe 20,000 years, back to when there, there were no settlements and there was definitely no state, right, kind of running and controlling the municipalities. When all humans were indigenous hunter-gatherer people, everything was free all the time. Because mm -hmm. there was no commerce, like maybe there was trading, right? But you would just take down a deer and that deer was free. You would go to the spring and collect your water. That water was free. You would pick, um, you know, blackberries and they were free, right? It just took work. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's labor, right? right? But there was um, an equitable relationship between your labor and the fruits of your labor. Yeah. And then as we went on, governing bodies and you know, industrious people formed this infrastructure that we call um, civilization and started claiming the rights to these resources and then charging people for them. Mm. So when it comes to water, this is kind of circling back to that question. My first choice, like the ultimate, is if you live somewhere where there are high quality springs where you can go harvest your own water, that's, that's, there's nothing that beats that. For a number of reasons, you're interfacing with nature in a really profound and innate and ancient manner. There's just something, anyone that's collected spring water, you know there's something in your DNA that's like, yeah, I'm supposed to be doing this and I've been doing this and we've been doing this forever. There's a real connection with the earth and and in celebrating the bounty that the earth and creation produces for us. Like water is free, holy shit, he's right, it is. And then you go to 7-Eleven and they're like, that's $4, right? <laughs> but no, it's, But that's just because there's this facade yeah. that's been kind of um you know um this overlay facade that's been imprinted on nature and you know hey i'm 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 happy about it it's fine i, I love having microphones and technology and all that <laughs> so the number one is you go to um, a site like findaspring.com 
you find a spring where you live, if it's been um, hopefully tested, or at least if the locals are drinking that water um, on an ongoing basis and there's a history of safety, usually in a community, there's a subsect of hippies like me that know where a spring is and everyone's been drinking it. And everyone kind of knows if it's safe or not because um, everyone's still standing that's been frequenting that spring. I'll add to that that the likelihood of someone finding a really high quality spring, which would be water that's clean, untainted, doesn't have any microorganisms or pathogens, um, is free of any industrial contaminants, acid rain, nuclear fallout, etc. cetera. Uh, what you want to go for is a really low TDS or total dissolved solids. And generally speaking, the water that's going to be the most free of contamination and also the lowest in inorganic minerals, which are difficult, if not impossible, to really assimilate into your body because they're essentially ground up rocks versus minerals that have been metabolized by plants. And then those plants are eaten by animals. Like if you eat beef liver, there's tons of minerals in it that did come out of the ground, but they've been sort of transmuted into um, minerals that you can assimilate. So to grade like the access to your springs and the quality of your springs, you're going to look for uh, the highest altitude possible. So here in Texas, our springs suck because we're very low altitude and the nature of the topography here is largely limestone. And when you run water up through the ground uh, from an aquifer through limestone, it picks up a lot of minerals and becomes a really hard water or high TDS water, which is less than mm -hmm. ideal. Going back to Mountain Valley, the uh, topography in Arkansas, where it comes from, is much similar to the topography here. So that water draws up a lot of minerals. So if you test the TDS, it's like in the three to four hundreds. And you can find the TDS um, of your spring water, whether you buy it or go collect it with a TDS meter. And um, also when you buy bottled water, it'll actually list the approximate TDS on the label, which Mountain Valley does. So Mountain Valley is better than tap water, better than Aquafina, you know, better than any Nestle or Coca-Cola or PepsiCo water that's like basically stolen off lands uh, and then sold uh, at the market. It's going to be better than that, but still not like that chronic because it's aquifer water. It's also been sterilized with ultraviolet light, which scrambles the DNA in the water and renders it sterile, mm. which is great so that you know it's safe to drink. It's potable water, but um, all of the life force in the water will have been neutralized by the UV treatment which of course wouldn't be present if you went out and collected your own spring water which is why I really like high altitude spring water because it still has the life force within it so much to the point that if you put it out in the sun in a jar within a few weeks it'll grow algae because there is the seed of life within yeah. that water there's a life force that wants to proliferate uh, and um, and continue on growing. So I think when you put that water water in your body, it has a different energetic imprint than water that you would get from you know Pellegrino or from Mountain Valley. If Mountain Valley is the best water you can get locally, that's that's pretty good, uh, especially because it comes in glass. Um, you know, so it's not leaching plastics and endocrine disruptors and things like that that are present in a lot of bottled water. So I guess to summarize the answer to that question in a totally non-concise way, um, back to the spectrum of water, like Mountain Valley is kind of in the middle of the spectrum, Pellegrino, same thing. I think in terms of uh, sparkling water, Pellegrino is pretty good and you can definitely get it in glass. But if I was in this person's position, I'd probably buy a little Pellegrino, a couple cases here and there. Keep it on hand for when you want something fizzy, 
you know, it's a nice drink in the summer with the lime, whatever. But rather than doing the Mountain Valley, I would get an AquaTrue uh, countertop reverse osmosis system and purify your tap water into a water that's going to be much lower TDS than Mountain Valley. And that can also, uh, is going to be free of any pathogens or contaminants because those filters are badass. And then you want to take that water and um, restructure it with something like the analemma wand or the natural action little vortexer. There's different tools you can use to reinvigorate that water and then um, remineralizing the water because the, that purification system is going to remove most of the minerals. And then you have essentially a really dead kind of empty, unnatural water. So if you're not going to collect your own spring water and you're going to take water and purify it, you're kind of denaturing that water and processing it, sort of like processed food. So if you process your water, then you want to put it through a secondary process where you reinvigorate that and essentially mimic spring water mm-hmm. by reinvigorating it through restructuring and remineralizing. Nice. And I was scared we wouldn't have enough exactly. questions. <laughs> like, so do we need any as more? Ver- as verbose as I am, like three questions could have filled up an hour, but I don't know. Like that one is just close to my heart, you know, yeah. because I'm just such a fanatic for, for the, the magic of water. Kyle asked me the other day why you like water so much. And I said, I think it's because it's ours. Yeah. It belongs to us. Totally. And it's for us. And, People are lying to us every day saying that it's not totally. ours. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the crazy thing, too, is where um, there is this manufactured scarcity. I mean, the same thing is true for oil. If you if you go down that rabbit hole, mm-hmm. like the earth actually makes crude oil and it also makes water. It's called primary water. Right. We don't have time to get into <laughs> it, but just trust me. If you, that was on the Telegram channel. If you research, yeah, the, we'll, we'll cover that in the Telegram. But see, scarcity of resources including energy and everything is created by the entities and the groups of people that have wrestled control over those resources. And if you want to increase the value of any given resource, there needs to be scarcity. And if there's not scarcity, you can't raise the cost of those goods that you've taken from the earth or wherever you've gotten them. So you need to create an artificial scarcity. And um, in my opinion, that's what's happening with water. And I know this because I've been to dozens of springs around the world since I was a little kid. And these springs have never stopped running and probably never will. Mm -hmm. Like, where's that water coming from? When you go to the headwaters of um, the Sacramento River at Mount Shasta, just tens of thousands of gallons just pouring out the side of a rock 24-7, for all of recorded history. Like we don't oh even, there's not even a date when they're like, yeah, and then one day in 1850, <laughs> all this water poured out of the mountain. No, it's just there forever. And it's so much water, it becomes a freaking river and makes its way into the San Francisco Bay. Wow. You know, so it's like, mm, there's no shortage of water. What right. there is is an abundance of people that want to lead the public to believe there is a shortage so that they can rake them over the coals and, and um, create fear and scarcity so that they can uh, be more profitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, we'll go to the next question. Yep. This show and my lifestyle in general is all about achieving maximum health on all levels mental, emotional, spiritual, and of course, physical. When it comes to the physical, I do my best to avoid guesswork, which is why I love this company, Inside Tracker. 
They've created an ultra-personalized performance system that analyzes data from your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and even fitness tracker to help you optimize your body and reach your wellness goals. Getting all this info about your body adds an exponential level of precision and customization to your inside tracker action plan. And when it comes to biomarker testing, I want to go for the max level of health, not the average. For example, my recent inside tracker testing revealed that my inner age is 47, which is cool because I'm currently 51. But I also found that my cortisol and LDL cholesterol was high. Fortunately, my vitamin D was optimized, probably because I get out in the sun so often as were my magnesium and inflammation markers. So I had a little bit of work to do. And the cool part about getting this info is now I can use their app and web platform to improve based on their personalized diet, supplement, and fitness recommendations. So with Inside Tracker, you can track your progress and adjust based on real-time feedback from your body. Then you retest every three months to see what's working and maybe more importantly, what's not, or even adjust your goals to develop a new action plan. This is an awesome tool for those of us wanting to make the best use of our time and money when it comes to being healthy. And you, my friends, can get on board right now and get yourself optimized. Just go to insidetracker.com slash Luke, where you will save 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. So again, just use the link insidetracker.com slash Luke. Lauren asks, what are your favorite books on surrender? And she says, after having my life radically changed by Michael Singer's The Untethered Soul and David Hawkins' Letting Go a few years ago, I'd love to go deeper again on this topic. Yeah, I mean, those are, I think, the the main two books that are specific to that topic that I'm aware of and are both incredible. So I can't think of any that are that have taken that any further or they're that are that focused. Um, but it is, I would say if I could pick my all time favorite spiritual principle or, um, just an underlying, um, truth of life that's impacted my life more than anything else, it would be surrender itself. Um, something that I've found to be really useful when finding books like both of those that are incredibly powerful and transformative is the repetition, you know? So for spiritual literature, for me, it's not so much about gaining the information. It's about assimilating and digesting the energy behind those words into my field. And the best way that I've found to do that is through the repetition of Mm -hmm. just actually contemplating and reading whatever scripture I happen to be interested in. Like those two books are great examples of that, especially letting go. I mean, I've listened to that audio book at least dozens of times, if not a couple hundred times, mm-hmm. just over and over and over and over again. They take a break, right? Get onto something else and then come back. And I listen to it over and over and over and over again, uh, reading the physical copies of those books, you know, underlying, highlighting, earmarking, bookmarking, just actually treating those books as as kind of scholastic books that I'm that I'm studying more so than like, oh, I'm reading that and I'm I'm memorizing some information. Um it has very little utility to approach spiritual literature in the same way. It's a different kind of learning, right? If I wanted to learn about 
a topic like water, for example. I could just study books that are giving me hopefully accurate factual information. I could compartmentalize that information into my knowledge base. And now I quote, end quote, know that. But gnosis happens <laughs> through more of an energetic transmission and inner knowing where it becomes um, actually wisdom that I'm able to demonstrate in my life is through the applied knowledge. So gaining knowledge of like, oh, I understand intellectually the process of surrender, but digesting a book in the way that I'm describing and actually applying the truths and the practices that are offered in a book is where the real transformation happens. So I would say, even though a different perspective could be nice, like you could read a third book that you know she's wanting there that could give you another perspective that could perhaps enlighten you to a different take on how to apply that. But to me, it's like, it's not a matter of gaining more information. It's a matter of mm. a continued and deeper and more consistent and thorough application of that knowledge. Like you really only need the one book, which is the letting go. I mean, that's, it just lays everything out. And the, I think to summarize the overall um, theme of that book is learning how to be present to our emotions and rather than avoiding our emotions and running from our emotions and numbing ourselves from the experience of our emotions, that we're learning how to really walk through the eye of the storm by using the principle of surrender. Meaning that um, there's a deep underlying acceptance of our situation at any given moment. And rather than fighting and rather than running or doing anything we can to wrestle change around it, that we just allow ourselves to experience whatever that challenge happens to be. And so... Um, yeah, I think it's about the repetition and then also gamifying what we're learning so that we actually um, provide ourselves or identify opportunities we have in our day-to-day -day life to apply what we're learning. And so surrender goes two ways for me. One is a top-down surrender. I've never actually thought about this, but it's just kind of the ideas forming, the models being created here. Um, hopefully it'll be useful to someone. There's the top-down surrender, which is for me in my life has just been surrendering my existence and, and my will, everything about myself to God, which is a decision that I've made many, many times over the course of the past 25 years. Generally and unfortunately at times where I'm just at the end of my rope and I'm painted myself into a corner and things are getting really difficult. And I finally just go, okay, like I can't do this. Help me. Right. Um, which is a really beautiful yet sometimes scary and painful place to be, but that's the top down surrender where I'm just going, Hey, I'm not going to try and control any of this. I I'm absolving myself to the greater and omniscient love and intelligence that, that I just referred to as God. And I'm going to defer to God in all my affairs. Now that's of course a practice and something that um, is easier said than done because we have an intellect and an ego and a will and a whole persona that we've been gifted and that we've built and developed throughout our lives that is antithetical to that surrender to that greater authority. But that's to me, the top down surrender is like, I've given everything to God and so then the details of life just kind of work themselves out into micro surrenders when things don't go the way that I have willed them to go or that I prefer them to go. The bottom up way of surrender, if that's too 
unattainable due to the resistance of the intellect and the ego that just won't let you submit to an ultimate authority that is a deity or God or however you understand that is in the micro surrenders of just the little things on a day-to-day basis that aren't going according to my plan and learning how to kind of let go. So another way of looking at the the bottom up path of surrender would be um, something I've called in the past, the acceptance ladder. We're like, I can't accept in totality the idea of surrendering my will and my fate to a power greater or outside of myself, but I can have acceptance for things throughout the day that carry much less meaning and consequence. So for example, I'm expecting a package and it, does, it needed to come today and there's all these things depending on it. I track it, ah, it got stuck, it's not coming until tomorrow. You could say, oh, I just need to surrender to that. But really, it's just an acceptance. It's an inner relaxation and just an inner trust of that one minute occurrence not going according to my plans. And then throughout, I mean, I'm talking in a micro level throughout the day. Then next, I put some food in the oven for lunch. I forgot about it. I got on the phone and it burned. Then there's, there's an inner acceptance of that just being as it is and accepting when um, things are outside of my preference and, and learning how to build a practice of acceptance that ultimately leads to a more overarching and global surrender energy in my life where I find that I'm able to work my way up from those little things that I accepted to actually surrendering to the bigger events in my life, such as a, a dramatic change in a meaningful and intimate relationship or the passage of someone that I love um, due to illness or natural death, things like that, right? Where things like big things are happening in your life and the pain that we experience as a result of that comes from the resistance to the acceptance. It comes from our lack of ability to surrender. Mm-hmm. It comes through the um, the exertion of our will and the frustration that we meet when we're unable to exert that will over the circumstances in our life to effectuate the change that we think we desire. So it's like there's all of these different paths to get to the same place. And that place that we're arriving at is aligning our will with the great spirit that created the world, the universe, and everything in it, including ourselves. And to begin to develop an ongoing relationship of trust with that omniscient, all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful being, entity, however you view it. For me, it's, it's not even like, I mean, it's ridiculous to even try to describe God, you know? But it's just, for me, it's not even a thing. It's everything, mm-hmm. right? It's like God individuates itself as different things so that it can experience itself. Mm-hmm. But there's really nothing in our experience of reality that's not God. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the challenge for some people in surrendering is like, well, what am I surrendering to? And how do I know I can trust them or it, right? So that's the ego is like, no, 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 I'm not trusting that things are, you know, going to go well. Like in the beginning of this, we're like, I don't know. It seems like the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm, I'm going to surrender my opinions about the way I think the world should be, mm-hmm. right? And that there should be no evil people in big pharma and, you know, people that are exploiting the environment and indigenous peoples and all the gnarly sick stuff going on in the world of that we live in of duality, um, you know, surrendering my opinions about that 
and my preconceptions in terms of like what I think should be happening or not happening. Mm. That requires a lot of trust, you know, but we were able to access the trust sometimes from that bottom up model where we just, we trust with the little things and we see, oh, practice. wow. Yeah. It's a practice, right? It's a practice. So you get way better. Exactly. Yeah. So any, and you really do get better. I mean, yes. like <laughs> I so find the shit that I'm able to just go, eh, it'll be all right. <laughs> like my, Ability, my skill, I guess you could say, for doing that does definitely increase. And that comes from the, the evidential experience, right? Of the package didn't come today. I'm all pissed off. I'm in resistance. I'm fighting that reality and giving my power away to not getting what I want. And I'm stamping my feet <laughs> like a spoiled little brat at 52 years old. But the educational process of practicing these principles is, hey, let me do an experiment. I'm going to totally surrender my attachment to that package, to the idea that that package needed to show up today in order for me to be safe and be okay. So I surrender that. I'm like, okay, I'm going to let it go. Breathe, Luke, let it go. Mm -hmm. And then the thing comes the next day and then a person showed up at the exact same time and then I showed it to them and then this other thing happened, right? It's like in hindsight, we can look back at all the times we trusted God, we let go, we surrendered. And I would say almost without exception, if we're really honest with ourselves and can humble ourselves to being mistaken about our opinions and desires and outcomes and all that, that things usually I'm not going to say every single time, but that's really what I mean. <laughs> Usually when, when I or someone truly surrenders at depth and they trust source, that things go infinitely better in every capacity than they ever would have had I exerted my futile efforts at control and getting things exactly the way I want it when I want it. It's like we're very short-sighted because we're not God, right? We just see like, I have a need, it needs to be fulfilled. And I think if it gets fulfilled in this timeline, in this way with these people and the way that I'm outlining here, that that's what I'm going to wrest satisfaction and security from. But we're very short-sighted because we can't see the infinite nature of time. We only see linear time and steps between here and there, where we are and where we want to be. Spirit is outside of the realm of time. So where we were and where we're going are all one moment. We only see this punctuation mark of linear time where we are now. When, but over the course of that linear time, we see, oh yeah, I have a history here. I have a record of every time I've surrendered. Ultimately, things go, quote unquote, my way. Mm. Because the highest path of my way is God's way. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. God wants the ultimate uh, path of evolution for me. And that evolution is we we're talking about at the beginning, doing things that are uncomfortable, that path of evolution. It's like God is so loving that, that it won't coddle me or spoil me or make things too easy mm -hmm. so that I can't progress as a soul and grow and mature, right? And move on to the next level of consciousness or evolution. It's, it's always going to give me that opportunity to exert free will, to learn from whatever my decisions happen to be around that. And it's going to help me to continue to kind of build that trust and work my way up to where it's not just the little things in my life I'm able to surrender, but it's my entire existence. It helps me to remember that if something is, like if it is how this is, it must be perfect. 
how could it be if it wasn't perfect like it just wouldn't totally yeah that's that's really good right because it's like well this is happening so it must be what's best for me that's you know that's the grandiosity of the intellect right it's like that reality is not going according to our plan right that might have been very thought thoughtful right and just well executed and we just know this is the way (laughs) but it's like can you really trust yourself you know like as if you know better yeah than god yeah and how do (laughs) yeah how do we know that things if say something that we perceive to be bad right going back to that shakespearean quote like Mm -hmm. i think this is bad therefore it is you know what if um what if nothing is bad like what if everything, as you're saying, is happening under a plan that we just don't happen to understand? I mean, that makes life actually really interesting because then it's about watching what unfolds. Oh God, I have this thing and I've judged this to be wrong, bad, evil. But because I'm viewing it from this particular locale in space and time, that's where I'm, that's where I'm sort of building that model of my opinion or experience of that reality. But if I can see it through, then I can see, oh yeah, everything's perfect. Everything's happening exactly that's supposed to happen. How do I know this thing's supposed to be happening? Say an IRS audit, like a pain in the ass, a divorce, like some shitty thing. How do I know this is supposed to be happening right now? To your point, because it is. That's the verification. That's the proof. Because if it wasn't supposed to be, it wouldn't be. (laughs) And that, uh-huh. going back to that question, um, and as you predicted, you know, we'd be able to dig into some of these topics and not necessarily even answer the question. I'm not giving her a third book, but I'm, I'm giving her hopefully some grist for the mill of some more, um, some more meat on this thing to work with, you know, mm-hmm. to help us all learn how to build a model that's maybe individual to each of our own preferences and how we think about things and feel about things and our past experience and all the beautiful individuality that we have, but there is one underlying truth and one fundamental set of laws universally that apply no matter if we believe them to, to be true or not, or whatever sort of system of um, belief or, or dogma, not even in dogma in a negative sense, but just whatever kind of model we've built into or opted into, um, these things are universal and they apply no matter what. Like the principle of surrender is real no matter what you believe. Yeah. The, the less one resists reality, the less one suffers, period. And that could be said from the point of view of a, a Buddhist. It could be said from the point of view of um, a Christian. You know, it's, they're just universal truths. And it's a matter of kind of finding your flavor and what, what modality of practice is going to be the one that's most likely for you to... Uh, habituate into your life can i just work on surrendering and accepting these little things that are seemingly insignificant and build my way up or have i experienced a life event that was enough of a blow where i was able to really humble myself and say wow i'm just going to like turn this whole thing over to god and i'm just going to trust in the macro uh, of my existence that there's something that knows more than i do about the way things that are supposed to go (laughs) yeah I, but there's one more thing with that too. Yeah. Actually a good caveat to add because I think one thing that the intellect and the ego, ego have a really difficult time with is then if you just accept and surrender everything all the time, then um, how do you get what you want? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Right? Or how do you um, not enable um, nefarious 
uh, actions of other people or or become complacent. Yeah, become complacent, become a pushover, lazy, a doormat, maybe or yeah. Yeah. So the way that I have found uh, the the kind of hack for that particular roadblock that's put up, which is which is a valid argument of the ego or intellect to make, like if I just let everything go, how does anything get done? Kind of, you know, <laughs> who's doing it if I'm not doing it? Uh-huh. So to me, and this is something I learned in the twelve steps. It's you know when I'm surrendering my will to God, which is essentially what to me is the basis of surrender. It's not that I don't get to have a will anymore. I do have a will, but there's sort of levels to my will. There's the lower animal self-based instinct, wants, needs, desires, cravings, attachments. That's a level of will, but there's also a spiritual will, which is the will of my soul to come here and incarnate, to evolve and to love, mm-hmm. right? So, And that's the will of God too. Yeah. And so it's not that I can't have a will. It's just how do I align my will with the greater will of that infinite intelligence. So the way it works for me in a very practical way is, you know, talking, going back to like, well, if I surrender, then how do I like guide my life or how do I have a direction or a point of view? If every, if I'm just like an automaton and God's just running me around (laughs) doing whatever it wants with me, (laughs) it's like, when I want something, whether it comes from like a lower nature and there's not even lower, like not, not putting a value attribute to lower, not the, like your higher self will is any more valid than you wanting a hamburger or mm-hmm. wanting to have sex or get some sleep. More or earthly. Yeah. I mean, it's all part of like our, our entire makeup of us as an entity. But when I want something, whether it be big or small, it's like I'm, I'm praying to God in a sense, um, hey, I really have an attachment to this outcome and I think it's real and valid. And this is what I want. And I'm, I'm handing the results of my actions, the, the fruits of my labor up to you. So it's not that I'm not doing anything or working for anything. I'm putting in the work here in the earth realm. It's the result of what I want that needs to be surrendered, not what I'm doing, right? So I might have a goal. I'm going to be a billionaire, right? Just as a neutral idea, not good, bad, right, wrong. I want that goal. At this, in the same way that um, I can't just surrender and not do anything. It's like, well, I can't have that goal and just say, God, make me a billionaire and I just sit here and eat potato chips and watch <laughs> soap operas or whatever, you know? It's like, there's an action now for me to take. Mm-hmm. So then I'm guided by the inspiration through that conscious contact with God. Ooh, call this person, go here, write a business plan, sketch it out, you know, whatever I'm going to do to start to actually affect change and start to motivate myself to start something. And then I'm putting in that work and I'm grinding and like I have a loose attachment to the outcome of that. But the surrender is what happens at the end of that input, right? It's the Mm -hmm. result of that. So I don't become a billionaire, but I tried. But the point was, is that I was surrendering the results, the fruits of my action to a greater intelligence than my own. But I still had a sense of purpose in the work that I was doing. So this podcast, like I would... My will would be that this podcast is like 10 times more popular than the Joe Rogan experience. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, it's not like a goal of mine. Let's just say it is. Right. Then do I just sit here and not do anything and just think, well, I deserve <laughs> yeah. that. And if God loves me, God will make that happen. No, I have to do the work. But if that's not the will of God, then that means that's not the highest will for me. Mm-hmm. In other words, like surrendering is surrendering to the highest good for all. 
So it might be what I think is the coolest thing for me is to have the biggest podcast in the world, but that might not be, and obviously isn't because it's not happening right now. That might not be the highest good for all of the field of consciousness and everything that it encompasses, all living beings of all time, right? So it's like thinking bigger in terms of what I want. And then the bigger I think, the more I'm able to let go and surrender the outcomes of my efforts, but still put in my due diligence and still put in whatever effort I think is necessary to achieve what I want. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a loose attachment to what I want. It's like, I'm going in this direction. I'm working really hard. I'm doing all the things. And then it's like, poof, it blows up in your face. That's when you need the surrender and the acceptance. But what if the outcome was already surrendered before I even start to do the work? There's a loose attachment to the outcome. Mm -hmm. So it's not- The inputs can become what they're supposed to be. They can do what they're supposed to do. Because they're charged with all the energy and they're not tied. Their worth is not tied to that outcome that you want to happen. You know that they're going to work out exactly as they should. And so then you can do them. You can do an even better job at them. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's, you know, it's like setting the intention, taking the action, and then surrendering the results. Mm-hmm. So if we just, if we surrender the intention and the action, then nothing happens, you know, right. Right? then we're what, just, what, what, nothing you, happened. what do you do with your day? Right. <laughs> yeah. so I just took a nap all day. I just, you know, I surrendered everything. So it's like <laughs> another way of saying it would be taking surrendered action, right? Like I'm, I'm yeah. actually really working towards something, but I'm surrendering the outcome of it, but I'm still taking the action. So it's, it's done. Whatever's being done is done with um, a greater sense of ease and actual pleasure and just more um, more peace. And also things can be much more dynamic because you're able to pivot constantly, right? And then things remain kind of novel and fresh, interesting. You're, you're present in the journey. Yeah. You're not putting yourself at the destination. Exactly. Yeah, you got it. So no books. <laughs> those two are good enough. But those, I highly recommend those books and we'll put them in the show notes at, uh, here will be a, li- a link for show notes, by the way, lukestory.com slash 444. I'm sure our numerology people will find some significance in that number. I just realized that I'm on that episode, 444. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, there you go. Nice. One of my all-time favorite healing modalities is ozone therapy. It's a powerful stimulus for correcting fundamental systems in the body, like immune balancing, energy production, blood flow, and oxidative stress. And ozone's got a long history of use in chronic disease, especially for things like cancer, Lyme, autoimmune, infections, and mold toxicity. But recently, and thankfully, ozone's been making its way into the biohacking world as a way to keep metabolism and immunity from deteriorating, which is how we most often use it here at home. Over 2,500 medical studies exist, and over 10 million treatments are done per year worldwide using ozone. The problem is that a single IV ozone treatment at a clinic can cost you anywhere from $300 to $1,000. This is why I recommend getting a Simply O3 system and just treating yourself at home. No needles necessary. You can use the Simply O3 system to make ozonated water or get the ozone into your body in numerous other ways. Their 3.0 complete kit is awesome. It comes with all the supplies you need to do thousands of ozone therapy sessions at home for only 1800 bucks. So if you're ready to get on board, here's what you do. Go to simplyo3.com luke 
and do your thing. And heads up for their epic Black Friday sale. It's on today, November 25th, through midnight Pacific time on November 28th, 2022. They're offering by far their best deal of the year, 35% off everything on their site. It's pretty unreal. So again, just visit simplyo3.com slash Luke, and this huge discount will be automatically applied at checkout during the Black Friday period. Now, if you're tuning into this episode after November 28th, 2022, don't trip, we got you. Just go to simplyo3.com slash Luke, and use the code Luke there for 10% off. Billy asks about solar panels on the roof. What are your thoughts with EMF? I've been thinking about this myself uh, with my own desire to get off the teat of the grid. I mean, as you can see here, I live in a neighborhood, so you know, I don't know how off grid I could be here. I'm not like yeah. out in the woods, but um, I have had a couple experiences where society started to uh, fall apart a bit. Like in the um, in the 90s in LA, we had the LA riots and then there was the Northridge earthquake like within the course of a couple years. And I saw how anarchy ensued relatively quickly. Um, we didn't lose, you know, power or anything like that, but I, I've kind of seen, you know, and then we had the the psyop of the toilet paper thing a couple of years ago. And when we were moving out here to Texas, uh, like on the way here, the snowpocalypse happened a couple of years back and everyone lost power and people's pipes were blowing up and, and shit got crazy because that weather was so uncommon here that there's just not the infrastructure to support that. And people don't have snow shovels and whatever, right? So everyone just lost their shit. So seeing those things and experiencing some of those things, I'm like, man, it'd be really cool to just have your own power. So um, to the point of that question, I've been interested in this myself and I'm going to do some research and of course report on whatever I find. The um, issue that that is prevalent as I understand it, having not researched it too deeply, is that um, there's a couple issues with the EMF with solar panels. One is depending on where they're situated on your house, like let's say you have a bunch of solar panels on the roof and that's over your bedroom or a place where you spend a lot of time and there's only, you know, 10 feet between your head and those panels, uh, you could have issues with massive electric or even magnetic fields coming through the walls and hitting you inside your house. So that's one issue. Um, the other one is, is that you would want to get um, essentially a dirty electricity filter that would be in line after your main power source that's coming from the solar system. Because what happens is it's some sort of conversion to AC-DC, something I, don't, I totally don't understand, but get the basic fundamentals of an electrician or EMF specialist would understand this. But essentially when you're drawing power um, from your panels to a storage battery or whatever it is, when that power is then converted into your house, it's very typical that it creates what's called dirty electricity, which is a really chaotic and quite powerful uh, electric field that comes out of all your walls. Mm -hmm. So it's, from what I understand, again, I'm not the expert on this and I've not personally gone through it, so I haven't worked it all out, but those would be the issues is the proximity of the actual equipment um, to where you're spending time in the house and then doing some research and finding ways to mitigate the dirty electricity that's produced by the panels and the way that the energy is actually stored and distributed throughout the house. Could you um, 
paint your ceiling with some EMF blocking paint or something yeah, like that? Yeah, I mean, if what, they're above you, what I if I if I actually I, I've been looking into getting solar panels there. What I would do uh, first is I would contact a building biologist. So in my case, that would be um, uh, Ryan Blazer from testmyhome.com. Actually, well, I'll ask him when he comes over. Yeah. He's gonna he's gonna inspect the house, and we're gonna do a podcast about it, um, which will probably come out after this one. Uh, and then Brian Hoyer and Shielded Healing—they're the team that did the um, the initial EMF uh, mitigation here. I would probably get in touch with a building biologist like them and say, "Hey, I'm about to install solar in my house. Mm-hmm. Are there um, different ways that they can do the install? Not all the products are probably created equally. Some might have uh, less of a propensity to create the dirty electricity issue, etc." So I would like consult with a building biologist who's qualified that can perhaps direct me into the best option for solar and also give me some some guidance in terms of if kind of all solar systems are essentially the same and creating the same problem in your house to um, preemptively have some solutions in place like the dirty electricity filters or your um, great suggestion of of painting the walls with you know shielding paint. In other words, like have the full EMF mitigation plan in place before you even install the solar so that you can make sure you're not doing something that's irreversible in terms of creating some EMF issue that's not fixable. So for example, um, and I don't know this to be a fact, but if it were true that say those panels were over your bedroom, if they were creating a magnetic field that was coming down and hitting you inside your house, magnetic fields uh, can't be blocked by pain you would have to put like, you know, sheets of lead or something uh, in your ceiling to prevent right. it from coming down. Like blocking the magnetic field is really difficult. Um, you can't just do it with paint or some fabric or something like that versus um, RF or electric fields, which can be relatively easily blocked. So that would be the kind of thing I would want to find out from a building biologist before I went through with an install and, you know, I get like a mitigation plan in place and then do the install so that I can kind of mitigate as I go rather than creating a big mess that I try to clean up later and, and might fail uh, in doing so. And get sick for it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's a, a really important question and one that I'm looking forward to learning more about as I go down that path myself. Because that'd yeah. be cool. I mean, our our power bill here is out of control in Texas because you got to have oh. the AC on for four months it's like 100 degrees you know you just you literally can't turn your ac off or you would just die in here um Mm -hmm. so it gets gets expensive and i think man i could invest in solar and not only have a little more autonomy and self-sufficiency but um probably ultimately save some money too um circumcision as an adult yes no and why yeah that's a that's a really interesting question um we'll put in the show notes i don't have it on hand but i did a show with um Brendan Murata, who directed a film. This is a few years ago I did this podcast. He directed a film called American Circumcision. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes, to his episode and to the film. What I would recommend to this uh, person, Piers, is to watch that film and listen to that podcast episode and um, see if your curiosity around the topic is still peaked. After that interview and watching that film, um, I was actually incentivized to start to explore the trauma that I experienced as a result of being circumcised. 
at the time I was born in 1970 in Denver, Colorado, it wasn't even, there was no option to not do that. It's just like automatically what happened once you were born. And so, you know, I don't even know if my parents were asked. It was probably just part of the menu, (laughs) Mm -hmm. part of the repertoire of of being born at that time in that place. Um, It's much more common in America than than it is in some other countries. Um, uh, My personal view on it is that it is, absolutely uh barbaric and totally satanic period like that's if i'm being really honest um based on my research there is literally no scientific grounds for its validity there is literally no purpose in in doing so in terms of um, all of this propaganda around um being more resilient against STDs or infections or this or that. I don't believe that God is this impeccable designer of the physical material plane of reality and just fucked up on the human male sex organ and put something there that doesn't belong. Uh, It just doesn't make any sense to me why that would be necessitated. Um, But then again, I have not lived life as an uncircumcised male. I don't know what that feels like, looks like, how that is. So I don't know what the instigation is for this person to be exploring that. Mm. But um, I can say from my experience that I'm very clear that that was not only um, uh, an extremely traumatic experience, uh, but that the repercussions of that as an adult have been substantial in my own relationship to my body, to my sexuality, and specifically to the degree of empathy and sensitivity I have had with the sexual partners in my life prior to my wife. And that Mm. um, part of the unconsciousness and abuse we see from males, in my opinion, is directly related to and correlated to the abuse that they endure as babies by being circumcised. So one of the ways I like to explain it is um, if you want to build a culture of more sensitive men, stop cutting off the most sensitive part of their body, right? And just thinking about, um, I mean, I've explored this a lot just in my own healing journey. And if you look at... um, even pornography, like heterosexual mainstream pornography, the way that people have sex in pornography, I think is much different than it probably would be in real life if all of those men were uncircumcised. Because hearing from uncircumcised men um, about the the degree of sensitivity that they have in that part of their body, um, all of the nerves that they have, which are equivalent to a female's private parts in terms of nerve endings and sexual satisfaction and sensitivity. Um, Men that are uncircumcised very commonly have multiple orgasms. They have deeper, full body, more intense orgasms. Like circumcised men are just missing a whole spectrum of um, tactile experience and the expression of pleasure. And therefore we become desensitized and uh, essentially like calloused on that part of our body, Mm -hmm. which requires um, a more uh, higher degree of friction and kind of brutality and blunt force, which is what you see in pornography. It's not like sensual soft lovemaking. Mm -hmm. A guy that is circumcised needs the friction of the pounding to like get the job done and for it to be pleasurable. 
and this is just kind of my theory on this, of course, because I, as I said, I haven't experienced both ways, but listening to a number of interviews with men who are uncircumcised and intact, as they call it, um, their experience of sexuality is nothing like mine. Mm. Just a much higher degree of sensuality and sensitivity and um, a much more broad spectrum of pleasure. And so I think part of what's wrong with our society, especially in terms of the problems people have with abusive men, um, part of it is related to that. Maybe not all of it, right? Because there's all sorts of trauma that a boy can experience and um, become an unconscious, exploitive, abusive man, right? Um, So I'm sure there's a lot of ways that we get numbed, but I think that's one of the main ways. So to to the question here, you know, to each their own. I mean, it's your, I believe in body autonomy and one can do whatever they want to do. Um, but I would highly, highly recommend leaving your body um, as it was when it was created mm-hmm. in terms of circumcision. Like if I could go back and do my life over again, I would never have allowed that to happen to me because I feel like I was truly robbed from part of my human experience. Mm -hmm. But back to the surrender topic, it was obviously supposed to happen because it did happen. So maybe part of the reason it happened is so I can answer a question like that. And maybe a parent listening to this who is planning on just kind of following the the rote uh, inertia of the medical system might go, oh, wait, like I'm going to research this a little bit. And I'll also add for any parents listening that have elected to do that, to their young boys, like no shame. Like I don't blame my parents. They didn't know. I mean, I've talked to my parents about it and they're just like, what? We didn't, there, it wasn't even a thing. Like you just, they just did it, you know? Yeah. So they, they didn't know any better. And any parents that are listening that might regret that, you didn't know any better either. And your kid, your boy's going to be fine. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. I'm killing it. I'm super happy doing good work in the world. I'm in love with the beautiful wife. We're going to have a baby. I figured it out. You, know? you are killing it. You know, sometimes I mean, you know, have my, I have my uh, shit to work on like anyone else. But what I'm saying is, you know, having that experience with my body didn't destroy my life. I'm sure it added some, um, some element of, of challenge. And, you know, it's also more for me to work with, more self-discovery. And it allowed me the ability to go from being a really unconscious male who was very dysfunctional sexually to becoming much more conscious and more functional so you know Mm. it's all it's all part of the journey but yeah um pierce man i would definitely watch the film that i um mentioned and listen to that podcast and that would be a good basis for your i would decision i would add that um sensitive people should be very careful watching that film that really that film really um you know woke me up and kind of messed me up for a few days it's it's pretty brutal especially in the scene where they show a standard medical procedure they show it being done and it's it's horrific honestly that's why i say i i believe that it's satanic you watch that part of that film and tell me like oh no this is like there's no reason to do it either it's not like oh you know you have di- diabetic foot. We have to amputate your foot. <laughs> Brutal, gruesome footage. And then you watch a documentary like, whoa, I've never taken my foot off. You had to. <laughs> there's a reason. There's a rationale right. for that, you know, that something that extreme. Right? Yeah. I mean, you have cancer. Like, wow, like cut me open, take the tumor out. Sure. Mm-hmm. But with that, you're just, you know, you're looking at a defenseless baby boy and there's literally no logical, scientifically grounded basis for... um 
for them to endure that suffering and what you know what they're going to be missing later on like i don't mm-hmm. i don't have a visceral memory of being circumcised right. but through the work that i've i've done and going into my subconscious and in the medicine space and all the ways in which i've explored my core wounds and shadow that one's definitely in there mm-hmm. you know even though i don't remember the doctor's face like there was a you know a sort of um demarcation of that point in my birth process where eh, things went super sideways. So great disclaimer on the film. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it's like, I don't know if you, I'm not trying to guilt trip anyone at all, but if you're a parent and you're like, no, I believe in this thing and I'm doing, I'm going to do it to my boy. Okay. Go watch it. Yeah. Yeah. It would be, I think a mature and actually reasonable request of oneself to just watch that and then inform yourself and make a decision like, no, I still believe in this because of, you know, my religious values or traditions or, um, you know, what I believe about biology, et cetera. I mean, it's pretty good. If you can watch that and be like, cool, I'm still down with that. More power to you. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's good to be, um, it's good to be informed. Yeah. A wise man once said, so they say, let food be thy medicine and let medicine be thy food. This is so true. Yet when we think about medicine, we don't typically think about it being sweet and delicious. This is why honey has always been my top medicinal food. Plus I also use it topically as it's known to possess antimicrobial and wound healing properties. And I also eat it straight out of the jar and use it to sweeten foods and drinks. High-quality honey is loaded with minerals and enzymes and all kind of goodies. But to say that not all honey is created equal is a massive understatement because much of the honey on the market is unfortunately total garbage. And even some of the decent honey you'll find out there can be tainted with contaminants like glyphosate. My favorite brand of honey is new to the U.S. It's called Bee Patagon Honey. This stuff is epic. It comes from the pristine Patagonian forest of Chile. So, of course, it's naturally free of contamination, and it is medically super potent. In fact, research has proven bee Patagon honey to have even greater antibacterial activity than Manuka honey. So if you're ready to try some killer honey, it's your lucky day because they're offering Lifestylist listeners a massive 30% off discount on all of their medicinal honey products. To get down with bee Patagon honey, here's your action plan. Just click through the show notes or open your browser and go directly to bepatagonhoney.com. Then use the coupon code LUKEBP to save that 30%. One more time for the folks in the back, that's B-E-E-P-A-T-A-G-O-N, bepatagonhoney.com. And your fat 30% discount code is LUKEBP. And you know what? While you're at it, give them a follow on social at bepatagonhoney, where you can see their beautiful land and honey for yourself. Benefer Jack asks, um, she lives in Texas and has guns, but needs to keep her home safe while she's away. Any suggestions for the safest products that will just record on loop? Um, needs it to be attached outside. So, so 
preferably a low EMF security yeah. camera? That is funny. This is a great question because I've been looking into this too. Um, back in LA, I had the the ring cameras and the doorbell and stuff, which was pretty awesome because you, you can look on your phone when you're out and see who's trying to break into your house and whatnot, which they were in LA because it's a shithole. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. Sorry if you still live there. No, people were trying to break in our house all the yeah. time. It was ridiculous. Um, probably largely because... But fewer people are armed there in their homes than here. You know, you'd have it takes a special kind of dumb to break into a house in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Most people are are uh, you know armed to the gills here. But no, to the question. Um, and I, back then, I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to deal with the Wi-Fi, whatever. And so I had the Wi-Fi enabled cameras. Um, what I would recommend is two things. Actually learned something about this recently. So uh, we wanted a, an alarm system on the house. So on all the doors and windows, there are these little sensors and whatnot. And then if anyone opens it when they're supposed to, sends it to the mothership and the cops show up real quick and arrest the bad guys. Uh, when they were installing this system, and I think ours is like ADT is the company. There's a bunch of companies. And I like they put a little sign in your front yard, you know, <laughs> so tell the bad guys, yo, we got an alarm. Mm -hmm. But I remember asking the installer, I was like, so how does this transmission, before he did it, I grilled him because of the EMF. And I said, listen, we don't, you know, we don't do EMF in this house. He looks at me like I'm a Martian, like they all do. <laughs> Um, and then I give them my story about being radiation poisoned by the cell towers. They still don't understand why I care. Oh God, it's frustrating. But anyway, I go, is this thing transmitting the thing on the wall, right? Uh, the control dealio module. I said, is it always transmitting to the substation? Like with us, cause it's using the cellular signal. Essentially there's like a SIM card in there. Right. And so it's like a cell phone on your wall. And I said, is it, mm. is it constantly blasting out um, radiation? It's like, no, no, it only, it only sends a signal when you do something. Like when you open the door, close the door, like boop, up, something happens. So it sends a ping, oh. right? Is the, is the system armed or not? Because you can go on your phone on the app and like look at the status at your house, which is nice. Um, so I was like, oh, sick. And so there was this other shit he wanted to do, like Wi-Fi, smoke alarms and all this bullocks. And I was like, no, dude, not upselling me on a bunch of RF in my house. It's not happening. So he bounces. <laughs> I'm super stoked. We have we have the alarm. I feel very safe, especially if I'm not home and Allison's here. She can arm the alarm and no baddies can get in. Then I was doing like a preliminary EMF testing day. I'm just on my own with my meters to see how well, um, you know, the mitigation stuff that we did worked. And I was picking up this crazy RF signal right down there next to the refrigerator. And I was like, God damn it. I bought a non-smart refrigerator on purpose but my friend told me that sometimes they have hidden transmitters in there and they'll make RF. Like they have hidden smart shit in them. And I was like, oh, God damn, we're going to have to pull the fridge out and paint it with shielding paint, which you could do, by the way, if you accidentally oh. bought a smart fridge. And I thought it was that. And then, you know, I'm kind of figuring out how to deal with that. Then one day I went into the hall with my meter and just happened to test the wall unit of the alarm. And it's like full blast, super high RF, constantly, no breaks. It's it's like having a cell phone on the wall that's on a live call all the time. Totally sucks. So yeah. the guy duped me. So I call ADT. I'm like, hey, your guy is a dumbass. And he gave me misinformation. He should be censored. And so um, <laughs> call CNN. So uh, they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. The guy tries to talk me out of it that I'm just a 
conspiracy theorists or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but still, um, <laughs> I want to cancel service. And they're like, oh no, you have a three-year contract, so it's going to cost you a couple thousand dollars or whatever to cancel. So I'm like, whatever. Okay. So I'm just leaving it because it's nice. You're surrendering. It's what it, yeah, surrendering. Yeah, it's like, okay. you know, accept the things I cannot change, you know, kind of thing. The serenity prayer is a great prayer. Um, so uh, to answer the question, uh, I think an alarm system is great, but I would really try and find one that is truly not transmitting 24-7 and only transmit when something happens. Second half, and this is something I'll be doing soon too, is you can get um, hardwired uh, cameras that have an Ethernet cable. A little more work to set up, a little bit of a pain in the ass, but essentially it would get wired into your modem and then it would be on your network. So anytime you're on your desktop or laptop, um, on your home you know, modem and router, you would be able to monitor the cameras that way. I don't know how it would work remotely. I'm still researching this one myself, but I'm definitely not going to have any like Wi-Fi cameras around the house because we don't even have Wi-Fi on in the house. So they mm-hmm. wouldn't, they they wouldn't, wouldn't work. work, you know. Right. The only time it could be useful in that regard is say I got the Wi-Fi cameras and we left town or we're out for an extended period of time, I could bump all the Wi-Fi on in the house, the cameras would work, and then when I get home, I get to turn it off. So, I, you know, wonder, that's my take on it. I wonder if you can, like, remote view into a computer that's on your network from your phone or something like probably, that. Probably, yeah. yeah, probably. I mean, there's cool stuff like what we did uh, with the pool, for example. There's a controller that works all the lights and fountains and filters and all that stuff. And uh, the little um, node that you get that plugs into the pool equipment has a Wi-Fi setting and it also has an Ethernet cable. And so I was like, oh no, am I going to be able to control it from your phone? Because otherwise you have to walk to the side of the house and open the pool equipment thing. And it's really hard to know what buttons to hit. It's just lame. Rain's here all the time. It's just a shit show. So dude comes and installs that and I hardwired it so it's not producing any Wi-Fi. And lo and behold, I just go on my phone and I can just control the whole pool on the network, which is also how our Wi-Fi in the house works. I use my cell phone to turn the routers on and off when we want them on and off. Uh-huh. So there, there, I'm sure is a way with your alarm, your cameras, where they're on kind of an external network that you can access using the internet and not have to be right. on Wi-Fi. Does that make sense? Yeah. And anyone listening that's not familiar with my show is going to be like, what a freak, just <laughs> use Wi-Fi. Like, keep the Wi-Fi on all the time. I don't like it. I don't want it on in my house, um, except in, in emergency situations. Like today, when you needed to be on your laptop, we'll turn it on, then we turn it back off. Mm-hmm. Um, Leslie is looking for ways to detox from fluoride. Best I've found for fluoride is to get on a safe and consistent dose of um, iodine. There's two companies that I like the iodine um, products from, and that is Upgraded Formulas, which is a nanoparticle iodine. It's really small, so it penetrates the cell. It's really easy to get um, cellular saturation. And then there's another company called Activation Products that makes a really great um, minimally processed iodine product. And they say that since iodine is an antagonist to fluoride in terms of where they sit on the periodic table, they're sort of opposites and they negate one another, kind of like aluminum and silica and some different minerals, mercury and selenium. Uh, There's a relationship between heavy metals that we consider toxins and minerals, which are also in one sense metals, and they can help negate some of the toxic metals in our body. 
So that would be my thing for fluoride in addition to just the regular stuff of, you know, doing periodic detoxes and saunas and taking activated charcoal and all of that kind of stuff to just kind of uh, decrease the overall toxic burden on your body. And fluoride would be something that would be um, probably positively affected by general detox protocols like we'll cover soon with, um, we recorded- Morally? Uh, no, we recorded oh. uh, Dan um, in L.A. God damn it. Pampa? Yeah, Dan Pampa. Thank yeah. you, Dr. Dan Pampa. He's a, he's a great resource for detox. I might have even asked him that question uh, possibly in that interview. So that'll be coming soon. Mm. Nice. Um, we've got Jennifer saying she's very stressed, frustrated at the lack of rigorous scientific health hacks for women, which I can understand. How to optimize, how can we optimize our hormones, sex drive, health for preparing for reproduction? Well, as a man, let me tell you women what you should do. <laughs> no, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we talked about this with our former guest, uh, Kayla Osterhoff, I think mm-hmm. was her name. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll put that episode in the show notes. And she's creating a whole, or has created a whole brand around what is being asked here, which is, um, you know, women optimizing hormones and reproductive health and whatnot. And, the way that she framed this issue was quite poignant in that all of the research is done uh, in the medical system essentially on males. And it's not necessarily because, oh, it's a patriarchal asshole system. That might be part of it. But it's also that uh, women's bodies and hormones fluctuate much more. Women are just physically so much more complex and awesome, right? So it would make (laughs) sense if you're trying to conduct rigorous medical studies that you would use males predominantly because they're just a more simple machine, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of the issue and there could be, you know, other parts of it too. There's just a male dominated field, et cetera. But um, she would be a great resource. And then there is also uh, another interview I did with Dr. Cleopatra. Actually, Alice and I both interviewed her and that was all around fertility, uh, nutrition and things of that nature. So we'll put the Dr. Cleopatra interview in the show notes as well. But I agree in the space of like biohacking and human optimization and all this, women are largely left out of the conversation. And I think that's a shame. And I'm doing whatever I can to, um, to help make progress in that area by interviewing women like Kayla and Dr. Cleopatra that are bringing science uh, to the table and science that specifically applies to females because it's super important. Not only so that it's like fair and equitable, but also because, hello, women are making the next <laughs> generations of babies. Like we need to take care of y'all and make sure that you're fortified and sturdy and have everything that you need to be healthy and happy, um, When it, especially as it pertains to procreating. Or we're going to have, I mean, we really have a diminished weak sauce population of mm. people now just from malnourishment, from all of these years of um, industrial agriculture and all the things, right? Um so I don't know if there's any turning that around genetically, but we do have some potential epigenetically mm-hmm. and also, you know, reversing the clock on as many women of childbearing years as we can and helping them to really produce healthy, happy, um, stable babies. I think um, I noticed something once I started like hacking my cycle, essentially, I realized that like men physiologically are more like standard maybe or simple. So it's easier to study them. But 
women, because they're so much more complex, there's so many more hacks for us. And there's, it's so much more fun to figure out how to align with where you're at on your cycle. It's like things can be, things can change so much more quickly and there's, you get to play so much more. That's interesting. That's cool. See, that's a great perspective, right? Of, of, of changing your opinion out of feeling victimized because you were born in a more complex body, right? <laughs> well, it's, yeah. I mean, that, that's true. Because I think about Allison and she's so much more in tune and sensitive to supplements, for example. Mm-hmm. Like she can feel things right away. I'm taking yeah. 50 supplements every day. I, I don't know. It all <laughs> seems to work. I feel good. I'm healthy. But she can take one thing, right? Uh-huh. And just move one lever and like, whoop, there's a shift to her liking or otherwise, right? That she can determine relatively quickly. I think that's that's really insightful actually to celebrate and capitalize on those sensitivities and the delicacy of the the human female organism. You know, there it, it can be a gift if you learn how to tap into it. Yeah. Yeah. I think with us, there's just... I take gross, broad strokes, right? It changes and sometimes it's difficult to quantify them because we're just like a more simplified meat suit. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense with the sensitivity. I didn't even think about that part. It's like we have so many more meters for what's going on inside. They can be set off in so many more ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some a blessing and a curse. Yeah, sometimes. we're just like... I have energy or I'm tired. I'm happy or I'm sad. <laughs> There's the spectrum, the male experience. That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah I, don't, I, mean, kind, I don't live kind that of, way. Yeah. Kind of, you know. I think some, I mean, I would consider myself on the super sensitive spectrum of males, but I know mm-hmm. a lot of guys that are just, you know, they're simple. They're easy to, easy to take care of themselves and are, you know, um, have kind of a, a blunted response to stimuli. They're kind of just resilient and durable. Mm-hmm. I'm a little more durable. on the sensitive side. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, Kristen Weitzel, when you interviewed her. Oh, yeah. She's a good, good one too. Yeah. that's Let's put her interview in the show notes because um, she also has, I think, a women's kind of biohacking coaching situation going she on. She might be helpful to um, the woman that asked this question as well. Yeah. Um. Julia says, my hair is falling out. Help. Uh, well, I can tell. Was it Julia? You said? Yes. Uh, oh, man, I mean, it's funny. With the hair loss, the, these challenges, from one perspective, I mean, this is for males and females, from one perspective, it's like, who cares? Just let it do what it's going to do. Oh. But it's, I mean, from a non-egoic, like, if I'm not identifying as the body and I know I'm something much bigger and more broad and meaningful than just my physical body and how it appears to other people, it's a a high level, maybe not that attainable goal for many of us to just like, oh, I'm going bald. Great. Who cares? I'm not my body, right? But for some reason with this one, I mean, I know for me personally, because my hair is progressively kind of creeping back on the corners. I don't know what you call that this area, uh, there's a name for that when your hair goes, when you go bald there. And it actually annoys the shit out of me. And I'm like, Luke, you're not your body. Like, that's your ego worrying about what you look like. It's just your meat suit. It's your shell. It doesn't mean anything. But mm. that withstanding and even having that understanding of the nature of reality, it still bugs me. If I see a photo of myself, I mean, I have to admit, I'm like, ah, oh, that kind of sucks. I'm losing my hair. 
I wonder if it's that important of a sign of how healthy you are that you can't, because that is a really hard one. Like most people can't get with that. Yeah, um, I mean, and like I, it's just it's such a <laughs> an accurate representation of your vitality. Yeah, that you're like, oh my gosh, I can't keep doing this. Like something needs to change. Right. Like that's the thing. You know, actually, I was thinking about this yesterday, uh, driving around for some reason. I don't know why this popped in my head, but I was thinking about um, hair loss and and why it bothers us so much, right? And maybe you know, there's the kind of like self-perception of how attractive you are kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, we all like to like be clean and have clean clothes and like represent ourselves in a somewhat presentable way. But there's something that bothers us so much about hair loss, kind of out of proportion to the reality of what it is. And maybe it's that, that it's like part of what the, the degradation of our attractiveness is because... yes. It's it's sort of broadcasting that we're metabolically deficient in yes. energy. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's a really it's an interesting point. I didn't arrive at that yesterday. I just was I was kind of left with the inquiry. Like, who? Why do we care so much about our fucking hair? Like, whatever. It's just trippy. I care a lot about my hair. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> for sure. I, I think you know both genders probably uh, yeah. probably do for different different reasons. So you know, but I for some reason I think because. I perceive it to be less common in females. I kind of have more mm-hmm. compassion for that journey. If a guy, you a guy, you just go, ah, oh, man, it's the luck of the draw. Shit. Like my younger brother, Andy lost his hair. Like when he was in college and he just shaved his head the whole time. Now he's 40 something. I don't think he walks around going, Oh man, I wish I had hair. <laughs> right. He just adapts. But you know, if he was a 43 year old female that was totally bald, I imagine it could be a little more of a hurdle to, to get into acceptance of that and just, you know, concede that that's your reality. It seems also that it's more common for women to lose their hair due to like an acute health issue, like postpartum or something like that. Right. It's like they'll lose their hair quickly or if they lose too much weight um, and they don't, and then they lose their period and they start losing their hair, they... Or they go vegan. <laughs> right. It happens. Um yeah. so they'll lose it and then it's like a big sign you need to get healthier and then they'll be able to bring it back quickly but more often when you think of male hair loss it's like they're getting older and they just yeah. are not growing it anymore because <laughs> yeah. of their family history or whatever. Totally. Yeah, yeah. That's how- that thing like, oh, it's my mom's dad or whatever, <laughs> I, you know. Right. Um but we're totally giving no solutions to our 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 <laughs> our, mem- our group member here. Um what I can say is we have a very comprehensive episode coming out that will drop sometime in the next month or so after this one is released. Uh, with Dr. Alan Bauman uh, out of uh, Florida. He's in... Um, Sarasota, I think. No, oh, he's in... Oh, Bogota. Uh, no, he's over in by Miami. He's above Miami. Anyway, mm-hmm. he's near Miami. More importantly, he is one of the um, world's renowned experts on hair loss prevention, natural ways, pharmaceutical ways, and also in hair restoration. So you think about hair restoration in terms of the old school plugs where you had like these weird sticks coming out of your head and it was so obvious to everyone that you lost your hair and had it surgically uh, implanted there. 
but he does all the things. So that's going to be a really great resource for her and, and all of the listeners and myself included. I mean, I was fascinated to learn there's different supplementation you can take. There's things topically you can put on your hair with the derma roller, um, the, um, what's it called? GHK, um, peptide with uh, copper in it and you roll that and you could put C60 on your head. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting things, red light, um, lasers. So there, there are things that work and help. And I think that episode is going to be like the, the mother load comprehensive data dump on this particular topic. So I'll just leave, um, I'll leave the answer to that one to someone who's more qualified to, to answer it. But if she hears of any any hacks, let me know. Because like I said, I'd like to bring this down a couple inches, you know, toward the front here. Just give me a few more years. I'm 52. It's it's a little early. I'm not really willing to just let it all go, you know. Um, Jonathan asks, what are the best natural or holistic methods for cleaning ears for kiddos? Ah, uh, you know, that's a really good one and so important because... I believe that I have pretty significant hearing loss and tinnitus in my left ear from, because it wasn't, everyone thinks it's from like when I was playing in bands and stuff, but it's on the wrong ear. Mm -hmm. The noise was always coming from my right side, which is where the drummer would be and the cymbals would be in my, you know, right ear. And my hearing is impeccable in my right ear. I think at some point, um, and I'm pretty sure I knew when it was, I went in a hot spring and I got water in my ear and I think it got infected and that infection, mm. you know, damaged the the inner ear. And so I think it's really important for us to be mindful about our inner ear hygiene. Um, I'm not an expert on this topic, but I do have some experience with like how bad ear infections can jack you up, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's different points of view in terms of whether or not it's wise to shove a Q-tip in one's ear or even a little one's ear. Uh, I think more experts that I align with tend to think that it's not good to put something in there. So it depends on whether the question is talking about a buildup of wax or if they're talking about like disinfecting the ear. As far as getting the wax out, I have no idea how to do that safely without using a Q-tip. Um, but as far as ear infections, which can be somewhat common with babies, as I understand, um, my go-to would be using ozone gas in a stethoscope you literally like have an ozone generator like my what's my called simply o3 is yeah. that what, yeah mm-hmm. i love I was that just thing. i was with micah the other day and i did the ear you did ozone for the yeah, first time yeah it's, it's badass yeah, yeah allison loves the the ozone in the ears um mm-hmm. uh, i do it in all kinds of ways but that's one and it's pretty much guaranteed if you have a budding or chronic or current ear infection, if you do ozone in your ears, it's going to knock it out because that ozone gas gets into the cavity, you know, inside your ears or in your skull, essentially disinfects and dissolves in there. So that would be one thing. And the other thing is I have seen and used at various times um, topical like antimicrobial drops of different essential oils and things like that that you can actually drop into the ear that will help alleviate infections and sterilize and things like that, um, which could even be an ozonated oil, for example. Mm-hmm. But there's a, at the health food stores, you'll see like a lot of kind of natural eardrops that I think would probably be safe and a good idea. I went through a lot of ear infections too. You did? Um, since I was born, yeah. Oh, and, um, Until I was like 20. But what happened to me was I went to a chiropractor who fixed my neck and I realized that the reason that I was getting these chronic ear infections was because it wasn't draining my, because my (laughs) neck was off, the 
the lymph and all the drainage that was supposed to be clear was all clogged up. And so I would get tinnitus. Like uh, I couldn't wow. even like take a test at college because I would be sitting there in the quiet room and it's like, whoa, Oh man. Whoa. Um, but yeah. And also, uh, I used to use oregano oil, but rubbed on the out rubbed like under the earlobe. Like you don't always have to put the oils inside because I had swimmer's ear too, where uh. there was water inside my ear and it, it would stay sometimes and not come out for a long time because it couldn't drain. And so instead of, because I tried putting oil in my ear and that was not good for me. So I started to put it some mullein, mullein oil sometimes or oregano oil with garlic, um, but just rubbed under the earlobe and really? kind of at the back of the jaw. And it co- it goes in there. Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's cool. Wow. Thank you for that contribution yeah. to the conversation. You're welcome. Yeah, that's rad. Yeah, I wouldn't wish tinnitus on anyone, by the way. It's just, it sucks so freaking bad. Yeah, yeah it brutal. never gets quiet. Yeah, it's brutal. Um, Christine just received her Mitozen Methylene Blue. She's curious about what time of day to take it. D- does it matter if you have food in your stomach? Yeah. What time? So of day? it sounds like she's talking about the MitoZen. Uh, we'll put those in the show notes. Really great methylene blue product. They have two different products. One of them is a suppository. And um, the theory behind that is great because you get sort of a sustained timed release over the course of five to seven hours. Um, however, I found with the suppositories, the dosage of those is is a bit high for me to use on an ongoing basis. And I experienced some sort of, I don't know, bladder, prostate irritation, kind of just like, oh, something feels weird. Uh, so I kind of slowed my roll on that. Um, then they came out with what I think she's probably referring to is an oral version, which is like a tiny little four-piece cube, kind of like a trochee, but you actually swallow it um, and take it um, internally. And um, for me, the uh, preferred time to take any version of melatonin would be, I'm sorry, melatonin, methylene blue, they also make melatonin, um, would be first thing in the morning on an empty stomach. Um, okay. not with food and not at night because I find methylene blue to be extremely energizing. And I've made the mistake mm-hmm. of taking it like around dinner time because I felt a little lull and wanted to stay awake for a bit. And then I'm laying there at two in the morning, like eh, my mitochondria are just on fire. Um, for those listening, I've done a lot of shows where we dive into methylene blue for people that don't know what that is. And I'm sure that very soon I'll be a show dedicated to that with an expert on the topic specifically, but methylene blue is um, so fascinating, multifaceted, so useful for so many different applications. I'm a huge fan uh, of that particular molecule. I would say, aside from just natural supplements, fat, you know, fat soluble vitamins and just stuff that you can get from food or things that are derived from food, as far as the synthetic realm goes, methylene blue would be my number one for sure. I, I take it quite often. I heard it was the first pharmaceutical ever. It was. Yeah, it was. I think it was invented in 1885 and it was like, yeah, the first patented pharmaceutical drug. Um, and it's, it's, it's just useful for so many things. I mean, it's a really potent antiviral, um, antimicrobial. So if it's done through an IV, for example, and especially combined with red light, it's, uh, it's extremely um, potent and useful. It's something that's... Um, 
censored and shunned quite a bit by the medical establishment because in contrast to pharmaceutical drugs that could be used for similar applications, it's exceedingly inexpensive because it's off patent. And so there's a lot of misinformation about it and a lot of fake news and propaganda around its um, safety profile, which is quite robust based on like factual history of use. Um, but that said, I wouldn't recommend taking methylene blue from any old company because a lot of it on the market mm. is um, potentially tainted with mold, yeast, heavy metals. Um, you know, if it's made in a vat somewhere in a sweatshop in China, probably not the best methylene blue. So you want like high grade pharmaceutical uh, methylene blue that's going to be free of any contaminants. And I know for a fact that uh, the Mitozen products uh, fit under that classification. They're very safe. But yeah, empty stomach, lots of water. If you can get in front of some red light once it's in your bloodstream, super powerful. That's kind of my protocol. Early morning, I take some methylene blue, go in the sauna space, red light sauna, get blasted. If you don't have a red light device of some kind, getting bright sunshine with methylene blue in your body is also really powerful. That leads us into the next question from Marla. Can anyone recommend a good red light therapy pad that they like? Um, like the heating pad size. We talked about FlexBeam. Yeah, I think FlexBeam would probably be my go-to for something that is small and portable that you can put directly on your body and do spot treatments, right? If you have a sore knee or shoulder or whatever it is, sore back, like you can put that red light directly on your skin. And the advantage with that, in addition to the portability, is the fact that um, you're going to get a much deeper penetration from having those the panels of red light directly touching your skin, which is more difficult to do with like a juve panel or something where you're standing in front of it and it's a few inches away. You know, you'd have to like press the part of your body you want to treat onto it. And then, you know, you you can't do anything else while you're doing that. Whereas like with the flex beam, you can sit there and watch TV. You can take it in your car, airplane. It's extremely portable. Battery lasts for quite a while. And um, and it's a pretty potent um, delivery and, and wattage of red light that's going to have a meaningful impact. I even wear it when I'm like doing dishes or doing laundry because it has the yeah. strap. Yeah, you wear it like a little belt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look like a extra from Star Wars or something. <laughs> this little battery pack red light thing on you. Uh-huh. Uh, last question. Louise asks, are there any podcasts which focus on sleep? Oh my God, yeah. Um, we'll put a bunch of them in the show notes because I've done uh, dedicated shows I had early on. I think the first one was with uh, uh, Klaus uh, Klaus Pummer is his name and he's the CEO or American rep for Samina Beds, Samina Sleep System, which is the sleep system we have. And he's a great expert on sleep and especially mattresses. Uh, we also have one coming out soon with the CEO of Essentia, another incredible uh, mattress company. Samina Sleep Systems is more of like a whole bed system. It's not really a mattress, so it's in its own classification. It's awesome. Not that um, attainable for many people in terms of uh, the cost, but the essential mattresses, by the way, I'll just throw this in there, I think are the most practical and um, and just legitimate mattresses that are organic and natural in the market. So I did those. I've also done some sleep shows uh, with um, the old CEO from Aura Ring, you know, the sleep tracking ring. Mm -hmm. So we've got that one to put in the show notes. And then I've done a couple with the folks from uh, Chili Sleep about um, sleep temperature and things like that. So we'll put all those prior episodes in the show notes and I'll offer some um, quick and practical advice on sleep before we start. 
for that person who asked the question. Uh, this is something I've been working on with a, a high degree of dedication for a number of years because as I get older, I find that if I don't get adequate sleep, both quantity and quality, uh, I, my life and performance really suffer. I mean, it's just a non-negotiable. It's something that's really important to me. What's helped my sleep um, the most dramatically is building a practice of avoiding blue light at night by wearing my gilded by Luke story glasses or just having red or amber bulbs inside the house. But really, like once the sun goes down, just no more blue light in the house, which is any bright white light. Um, that is that's a very real science. Like that's factual that your melatonin production stops when you're exposed to screens and bright lights and blue lights and things like that. So the blue light mitigation. Uh, EMF is a huge disruptor of sleep, so I would highly recommend dealing with your EMF. If the best you can do is turning off your Wi-Fi router when you're sleeping, that's a good start. If you live anywhere near a cell tower, which to me would be anywhere within a half to whole mile, um, if you if you got one closer than a half mile, I would personally move. Uh, and if not, I would have my whole bedroom shielded with shielding paint by a building biologist. But the EMF is really important. Um, another thing that will disrupt your sleep with EMF is keeping your phone in your room. Even if your phone's on airplane, it's still pinging the towers. It's still producing a signal. Even, and I tested this recently and was shocked to find this out, even if your phone is turned all the way off, only the screen is off. Your phone is still on. Your phone is still pinging. That's why if you use the Find My iPhone feature, when your phone is turned off somewhere, it still works because it's still connecting to the tower. So... What I do with my cell phone is I turn it off and I put it inside a little Faraday bag, which is an EMF-proof bag, which also gives you the benefit of having privacy. So if somebody's tracking you, <laughs> they won't be able to track you if your phone's in a Faraday bag because the GPS is disabled by doing that, essentially. Um, so those are the things. And then uh, I would say uh, totally dark room, like pitch, pitch, black, black. Like you can't see your hand in front of your face, black, um, the entire time you're sleeping. And then the other thing is uh, regulating your temperature. I love the Doc Pro from Chili Sleep. I had their first one called the, the Chili Pad, the Cube, I think. And then I had the Uller. Burned them out from using them for years, every single night, all night in hot climates. And now I have the Doc Pro, which I love. I would say out of all the things that I just named, regulating the temperature in my um, sleep environment has been the number one most powerful thing to improve my sleep. Lastly, something that's really important in terms of your circadian rhythm is getting direct sun exposure immediately when you wake up first thing in the morning. If you're so lucky to be situated geographically in a place where you can see the sun rise on the horizon and do some safe, studied, educated sun gazing, you got to add that caveat in there because you could hurt yourself if you sun gaze improperly, in incorrectly. So sun gazing in the morning is what sets your melatonin production for the following night. So if you want to get tired at an appropriate time and have deep sleep, it's really important to get that not only just bright spectrum of light in your eyes and on your body early in the morning, but specifically the spectrum of red that's present at dusk and dawn. So if you find that your circadian rhythm is thrown off, sun gazing at dusk and dawn and bookmarking your day that way if you can um, will really go a long way to help your hormones and neurotransmitters improve your sleep schedule. Nice. I would drop the mic, but it's yeah. connected to my head. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. So thank you. Thank you, Bailey, for being you know my co-host, yeah. uh, presenter here today. I, I got to say, I did find it much more fun 
Yay. And spontaneous uh, and just less grueling than sitting there staring at my computer trying to do this all by myself. Oh, I'm so glad. And I also, because we had this book, I couldn't procrastinate it, which is very mm. common, as you know. Yes. When I have a deadline due for a solo cast, I'm just like, oh, I got to prepare all the notes and do all the things. And I make it so hard for myself. So. Oh. This was, yeah, this was really fun. This and, felt um, easy to me. It's great. It's so rad. I mean, this is like if you just sat down and were like, hey, Luke, I got some questions about something. Yeah. Like, and no mics are here. We would be doing this. Yeah. So it's very organic, fun, and spontaneous. You ready to go? All right. <laughs> we're getting the Apollo Theater cane pulled by the wife. <laughs> She's ready. Remember the cane on the Apollo? <laughs> they come out if you suck and they just like yank you off stage. <laughs> Cookie's even barking out. She did right. the dance. We're out of here. Thanks, Bailey. Thank you. All right. See you later, alligators. Thanks for joining Bailey and myself on this AMA show. And don't forget to send some feedback on how this new format landed for you. You can, of course, do so on my Instagram at Luke Story or in the Lifestylist Podcast Facebook group or simply by responding to the newsletter if you happen to be lucky enough to be on my email list. In closing, may peace be with you, and we'll see you again on Tuesday to explore the fascinating world of the harmonic egg.